Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 17, verses 13 through 19. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. The word of the Lord. So for those of you that have been with us uh, over the last several weeks, we have been in a series uh, taking a look at our uh, core convictions, our core values, the things that we believe will help us accomplish our vision, which is to both know and show the love of Christ here in East Harlem. Uh, The first week of this series, we took a look at personal conversion, believing uh, that the gospel fundamentally changes lives. Uh, Last week, we took a look at the idea of spiritual formation, uh, which ultimately is that we are called to be followers of Jesus who also help others be followers of Jesus. And this week, we'll be looking at core value number three, which is community involvement. Let me read for you our statement on community involvement. Uh, You can find a little bit of a little bit more information on all of these core values at our website. Uh, But let me read this one for you. That we are a church that seeks to empower people to show the love of God by being faithfully present in East Harlem and engaged with the specific needs and concerns of the neighborhood. Now, what I want to hone in specifically today on specifically today is this idea of being faithfully present in regards to community involvement. Uh, As a church, we desire to be faithfully present in the neighborhood in which we gather, but this idea of faithful uh, faithful presence extends far beyond just what we do here corporately in church life. It actually extends into all aspects of life. This idea of being faithfully present uh, is really a call for all of us to be uh, present in the various places that God has put us And so what I want to consider then is how should Christians uh, be thinking about being faithfully present in their communities, in their workplaces, in their families, wherever they might be. And I want to do that by considering a a few different things. Um, Particularly, I want to draw out an idea from this passage here in John 17. Um, If you've been around the church for any length of time, this, uh, this passage is a popular passage, and it has a popular notion that's been pulled from it, which is simply this, uh, that Christians are to be in the world, but not of the world. That's this passage here is where that idea comes from. There's several other passages as well, like in 1 John 2, where, again, we're drawing out that idea of being in the world, but not of the world. Uh, And this notion of being in, but not of the world certainly has uh, some merit as I do believe it captures a part of how Christians should relate to the world. However, what I want to see today is that this this adage uh, is insufficient to capture the Bible's full portrait of how Christians are to live, and it does not properly get at what Jesus is actually praying here in John 17. And I want to show you why. 
And I want to do so uh, by understanding faithful presence through the lens of John 17 by looking at uh, three things in particular. I want to take a look at this prayer, the prayer of Jesus. Then we're going to look at the call from Jesus and then finally the work of Jesus. And I'm just going to give you a heads up right now. Point number one is long. The other two points are less long. So don't freak out uh, if point one (laughs) belabors a little bit. Uh, But so first, uh, the prayer of Jesus. So here in John 17, you have the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Uh, This prayer is uh, probably the prayer that we should actually call uh, the Lord's Prayer because it's this prayer that Jesus is actually praying for his disciples, for his followers. If you are a Christian, you should at some point read this chapter uh, and hear the words that Jesus has literally prayed for you. This prayer, uh, in context, to understand what's happening, is a prayer uh, that Jesus is praying right before Judas, the one who would betray him, would come with a band of soldiers. In the very next chapter, uh, you see this uh, occur. And so this prayer is happening with Jesus' death uh, imminent. It is coming, and it's coming soon. And while there's much that could be said about this prayer from Jesus, uh, the mission of Jesus And how it relates to the mission of his followers is one of the central aspects of the prayer. I mean, this prayer is a very robust understanding of salvation that Jesus accomplishes and also the nature of the Christian's role in what God is doing in the world. And for these things, we have to pay attention very carefully to what Jesus is actually praying. Now, admittedly, Jesus' words uh, about his disciples... Uh, Being not of the world can certainly be a little bit confusing. So starting there is going to be really important. What does it mean for Christians to not be of this world? And what I want to consider is Jesus' most direct statement in verse 16, where Jesus says that Christians are not of the world just as he is not of this world. So what exactly does it mean that Jesus is not of this world? Well, let's think about it in terms of what Jesus would say later in John 18, uh, the next chapter, where he says that his kingdom is not of this world. That his kingdom is fundamentally different than the kingdom of this world. Uh, From the biblical perspective, the world is a kingdom that is marked by the effects of sin. It is a world into which we are born and to which we are subject It is a kingdom that Jesus said back in John 14 is a kingdom that is ruled by the evil one. The kingdom of the world is a kingdom of brokenness and sickness and suffering and fear and injustice and even death. And whether one is a Christian or not, the brokenness of this world is pretty universally understood as something that is problematic, um, that we we, regardless of how you might, uh, the perspective that you have about the world or about God, I think we can all agree that this world can be a very messed up place. But I think what would most, also what most would agree on is that there are things that we experience in the world that really should just not be, that violence and injustice and anxiety and depression and fear and hatred and deception sickness, and even death, death that is inescapable, that intuitively 
we know that it ought not be the case. Something seems wrong with the world being this way. And so from the biblical perspective, we, are meant to, uh, we aren't meant to experience these things. It was not God's intention for us to experience the brokenness of this world. And so what's interesting, as Jesus begins talking about this kingdom, is that this kingdom that God, Jesus is speaking of is in direct contradiction to the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of God is fundamentally a kingdom not ruled by the evil one, but rather by Jesus himself. The kingdom of God is a kingdom that is marked by hope and joy and compassion and mercy and justice and the glory and the majesty of God. And so, when Jesus says that he is not of this world, he is saying that there is another kingdom to which he is loyal. And for those who have faith in him, they too are to be loyal to another kingdom. That their loyalties have shifted from the loyalty to the kingdom of this world to now being loyal to the authority and the reign of the kingdom of God. And in many ways, this is what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to no longer identify oneself with the things of this world, to no longer submit to the values and the priorities of this world. To be a Christian is to have one's loyalties shift to a new kingdom. Uh, Philippians 3 puts it in terms of citizenship, that the Christian is no longer ultimately a citizen of this world and its kingdoms, but rather their citizenship is now in heaven. And the flip side of that would also be that to be of this world is to ultimately refuse to shift loyalties to this new kingdom. One commentator, when considering the way that uh, John uses the word world, said this, that what makes the world worldly is its persistent rejection of the claims of God in favor of its own values and desires. I mean, this is very similar to the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, where he talks about where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, that the kingdom is that, which to, that to which you are loyal. And often that's where our treasure ultimately lies. In other words, to be loyal to the kingdom of this world is to say, I prefer the claims and perspectives and patterns and beliefs and values and desires of my culture or my political party or my friends or whatever else more than God and his word. Now, what I find to be uh, interesting as I take a look at our culture broadly, it's interesting to me that we, we still live in a culture that has been deeply shaped by Christianity, the Christian faith, and, where Christ, and also where Christianity is still the predominant belief system. You know, there's a lot uh, that is being said about the ways that our culture is shifting, and certainly our culture is shifting, but still Christianity is the dominant belief system in our society. And yet as a result of that, here's what's happened as a result of that, is that being a Christian or calling oneself a, a Christian really becomes a cultural thing, and it really does not often require an actual loyalty shift to the kingdom of God. In other words, one might take the title Christian, and yet fundamentally, 
never have their loyalties shift from one kingdom to another. And often we easily acknowledge God as our Savior, but this idea of God being Lord and King tends to be problematic because that means that fundamentally we shift our loyalties from my own ways to his ways. And again, to put it in the term, in words of Philippians 3 with citizenship, consider how we think about citizenship, even at like a government level, at a national level. To be a citizen is to have your loyalties to a specific nation. I mean, what is citizenship if not a desire to be loyal to a particular nation? I mean, consider a person who wants to become a citizen of a particular nation. Imagine that person never professing loyalty to that nation and also maintaining loyalties elsewhere. If they were to then say that they were a citizen, we would know that, well, saying so doesn't actually make it so because until one is prepared to profess loyalty to a nation, their ability to be a citizen of that nation is just not possible. It doesn't make sense. And so to not be of this world is to acknowledge that my citizenship is not ultimately here, but rather my loyalty is not to anyone or anything in this world. I am a Christian before I am anything else. My loyalty, my citizenship, my ultimate affections are for another kingdom, ruled by another king, that king being Jesus himself. And as a result... My life and my priorities conform to his will, for I am in the service of that king. But here's where uh, the complexing parts can come in. Uh, because if this is, this, this is what ultimately has become a challenge for, for many of us, for the church, as they begin to think about how to engage then the world. Um, specifically, so Philippians 3 goes on to say that we are citizens of heaven, but that we await the return of Jesus. Uh, Earlier, Paul speaks of remaining in the flesh. Here in John 17, Jesus asked God not to take his disciples out of the world, but rather to leave them in the world. In other words, Christians are part of a different kingdom, all while remaining in the territory of this kingdom, of this world. And this, of course, is where that adage, in but not of the world, comes in. But again, what does Jesus actually mean? What does Jesus actually say? And is that adage, the idea that we are in but not of the world, is it a little problematic? I would say, yes, it is, because what we need to see now is the call of Jesus. Let's see what Jesus actually says. Um, So historically, and even today, I would say that many times Christians, they've taken this idea of being in but not of to mean that Christians ought to kind of hunker down and isolate themselves as to be in the world, but to avoid being corrupted by the world. And the problem with having that kind of mentality is that it assumes that our eyes are actually supposed to be taken off the world, orientated to another coming kingdom, which in some sense I think is true. But what are Jesus' actual words? What does he actually pray in this prayer? Well, he says that they are not of the world, meaning again that their loyalties have shifted elsewhere. But look at verse 18. Jesus prays, not that they would just be in the world, 
but he prays that they would be sent into the world. That's different. It's different to see oneself just as in and to see oneself as sent into. In other words, Jesus desires not to see his followers hunker down or isolate or await his return by shifting their eyes off the world. Rather, he desires for his followers who are already of another kingdom to keep their eyes on this world by being sent into it. And this, I think, is where sometimes we get things a little wrong. Christians can get a little bit extreme. And so to push those extremes to the caricature so that you can see what I mean, there's really two extremes that I think Christians can have in regards to, back to how we'd frame this, being faithfully present. Okay? First extreme. There is a way to attempt to be faithful without actually being present. And the way that tends to happen, on the one hand, is that you have Christians who, again, understand this idea of being in but not of, really as a call to create this robust Christian subculture, one that can often be detached from what is actually happening in the world because Christians just want to keep the world out. And this is how Christian, the word Christian, really started being used as an adjective uh, instead of remaining a noun. And what I mean by that is that we have entire industries like Christian music and Christian colleges and Christian movies and Christian books and Christian clothing companies as a result. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, I'm not knocking those things. I have benefited from what would be called Christian colleges and I've enjoyed what would be classified as Christian music. Um, I've certainly owned a Jesus fish or uh, a what would Jesus do bracelet in the 90s that I probably bought from a Christian bookstore. Uh, like I acknowledge those things as being good things. But what I'm addressing here is that within our culture, one where Christians have held an enormous amount of privilege, have been in a privileged position for a very long time, creating a subculture really became the goal of being in but not of. And for some, remaining in that subculture and avoiding anything labeled not Christian was the epitome of faithfulness. This, however, is not what Jesus is calling his disciples to do here in John 17. Back to this idea of faithful presence. This idea is really an attempt to be faithful with a complete lack of presence. Because the net result is that Christians can very easily become disconnected from the tangible concerns and injustices and cultural trajectories of their communities that surround them. So that's being attempting to be faithful, but not really being present. Of course, the other extreme would be the flipped idea of not really being faithful, but attempting to be very present. Because on the opposite end of that spectrum, you can have a church that is hyper-aware of the concerns and the injustices and the cultural trajectories of their community and their world, and yet can lack conviction about being, a, uh, being distinct from the priorities and assumptions of that world. Right, this is a church that can be more influenced by the opinions of a cultural moment and less influenced by fidelity to God's word and his commands about what is good and right and holy and pure and righteous. And in this way, you have a church that is present 
and very aware of what is happening around them, and yet too often, I fear, maybe unfaithful in the midst of that presence. And I bring all this up because Jesus wants his disciples to know that neither approach is sufficient. Christians are not of this world and therefore should not be more swayed by the opinions of man or the whims of culture more than faithfulness to God's word. However, he also wants his disciples to know that Christians should not be walled off in this subculture that attempts to stay distant and far from the concerns of the world. That might be an attempt at faithfulness, but because it's not present, it is therefore not faithful. And so the alternative, which is what Jesus is proposing, is for his church to be loyal and faithful to one king, a king whose kingdom will never end, But as they are faithful to that king, they go into the world, not in some isolated, walled-off way, but immersed fully to make known his kingdom in both word and in deed. This is what it means to be faithfully and present. This is what it means to be engaged and involved in our communities and our surroundings. To be a church that is faithful is to be a distinct community that is also fully immersed and active in the world. Theologian Orlando Costas, when thinking about this idea, put it this way. He said that the church, which is not the kingdom, is nevertheless the most visible expression and its most faithful interpreter of our age. The church both embodies the kingdom in its life and witness to its presence And its mission. In other words, the church, those whom Jesus has sent out, are called to embody the kingdom in this world. So let me get, um, with all that said, let me get practical, bring this down a little bit. Let me ask you a couple of questions, important questions, questions that I think both address what we're talking about, but also confront where we might stand in relation to this idea. The first question that we have to consider is where are your loyalties? I mean, that's fundamental. To what kingdom are you ultimately loyal? Are you loyal to this world in that you persistently reject the claims of God in favor of your own values and desires? I mean, that's an important question. Or are you not of this world in that your ultimate loyalties and affections are to the kingdom of God? It's a confronting question that we all should wrestle with. Where do our loyalties ultimately lie? But the second question that we have to ask ourselves is that if we are loyal to the kingdom of God, how do we understand our sentness? Do we think about the idea that we are actually a sent people wherever we might go? Do you see yourselves as one being sent into the world to be faithfully present, and as Costas notes, that you see yourself as being a visible expression and a most faithful interpreter of that kingdom? Do we see ourselves with that kind of conviction wherever God may lead us to be? Jesus is sending his followers into a world that he loves, 
We know that he loves this world. Of course, famously in John 3, for God so loves the world. A world that so often persistently rejects him in favor of its own values and desires. This is why Jesus came into the world. God so loved the world that he sent his only son in order that the world might see and experience a new kingdom, a kingdom that will never end, a kingdom that is ruled by a king who is always good. This is the work of Jesus. And though he calls us, though he sends us, we must remember that it's Jesus who has set the bar. He, has, he is the one who has done the work ahead of us already. Which, of course, gets us then to this last point of the work of Jesus. I mean, nothing I have said to you today really ultimately matters if not for the fact that Jesus has gone before us to accomplish something that we ourselves would never have been able to accomplish. Look at verse 19 here in this passage. Verse 19, let me just read that for us. For them, this is Jesus speaking, of course, for them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Other translations say that, says that Jesus consecrates himself. This idea, this word, is a word that's recognizing that Jesus has committed himself to a particular mission and that he's asking that his followers also be committed to the mission that he gives to them because he knows what it will require of them. It will require everything about them. It will require their entire lives. And in order to give oneself to another kingdom, it inevitably means that at times we will be at conflict with this present world in which we live. In verse 14 in our passage, Jesus talks about the the result of the word is that the world hates him and that the world will also hate his followers. He knows what he's calling his followers to do, to give their lives completely to this. But again, remember the context of Jesus' prayer. It's in the very next chapter that again we will see him betrayed. Eventually he will go to the cross. And so Jesus here prays in verse 19 that he would would sanctify himself, that his disciples might be sanctified. That he is committing himself to giving himself fully to the mission of the kingdom, which was to seek and to save the lost, that his followers might be able to do the same. Jesus Christ was the sent one who was not of this world, for he was completely loyal to another kingdom, yet having been sent into the world for you and me. In the opening uh, chapter of John, John in, his, in the opening words of his gospel says this, famous words, that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, out of love. The Son of God got involved in our community, so to speak. He was faithfully present. He dwelt among us, fully immersed in our suffering and in our pains. He knows what it is to be like us, to be hated by those who walk with the Father. As Romans 5 says, that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And because he was sent, he now sends us. 
he sends us to dwell in this world, to experience the suffering and the pain of this world. And though at times we may be hated, he also calls Christians to give our lives to making known his goodness and his mercy, his compassion, his justice, to make his kingdom known and seen to be that visible expression, most faithful interpreter of the kingdom. And what I find to be beautiful about this is that Jesus is not calling us to do anything that he has not already done himself or that he will not ultimately accomplish. Jesus has accomplished what is necessary for your citizenship in this new kingdom. He has made it possible for you to shift your loyalties to a new kingdom. And though we live in a world that is still marred by sin, broken in more ways than we could even fathom, on the cross, Jesus takes that brokenness upon himself. In his resurrection, he proves his victory over sin and death and the evil one so that now as we go and as we enter this world on mission to be faithfully present, we do so from a position of victory and confidence that our Savior is with us by his Spirit working through us. This is how we are faithfully present. And I pray that we as a church and that we as individuals take seriously our call to be faithfully present in our communities, in our workplaces, in our families, everywhere that God sends us. For Christ was faithfully present first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of your son. We thank you that he left behind all majesty and riches, that he came and was present among us. But not only was he present, he was also faithful. Faithful to the extent that he was sinless without blemish or blame. But out of his love for us on the cross, he takes all the brokenness and sin that has impacted our ability to know you, that has marred this world, your creation. In his resurrection, he conquers that sin, he conquers death. And it's that victory that is now ours as we put our faith and trust in him. So would you help us to remember that you are with us by your spirit, that you are working through us as you have now called us to be faithful, faithfully present, to be visible expressions, most faithful interpreters of your kingdom. Would you help us to do so? In Jesus' name, amen.